Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Steady Compass. I am your host, Quez. And today, man, do I have an amazing guest. His name is Jonah Blake. You know him from his work as the founder and operator of Real Third Web and the Real Agency Collective. He's an investor, researcher, builder, and above all, a fortified gamer. Ladies and gentlemen, we are sitting with one of the most dynamic individuals in the industry. Jonah, welcome to the show. Well, uh, I appreciate those intros. I, you know, I don't know who paid you to write them. It wasn't me, uh, <laughs> but I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, no, I appreciate it and happy to be on your show. Hell yeah, man. I'm super psyched about this one. I know we've been uh, playing tag a little bit with the, with everything going on. Congratulations on the Mint, realagency.xyz. Ladies and gentlemen, you could check it out right now and take a look at the site. I know we're about to enter chapter two. We don't have to get too deep into uh, what the project entails, but I know it's been a long time coming, something you've been wanting to do. And seeing you in your zone, I could tell that you have big plans, big ideas for real agency, which makes me want to lead into my first question for you. You've harped on a lot about being very into luxury, gaming, and culture. Where do those things come from? Why do you care about those things? Yeah, for me, it's quite simple. I think that with AI and all these other tech companies, Unless you're a B2B business, which we could be, competing on the tech level is almost impossible. You either need an extreme amount of capital or an extreme skill set that I know I don't have. That's not my spe my special skill. And so a lot of projects that are thinking on the tech side, they need to have the top Solidity developers, the top this, the top that. And I think media, while it's priced differently, it has a different valuation when you're raising money, good media is almost invaluable if you can achieve it, because media can catch up with technology and stay relevant. I mean, look at Nike. Yes, they're a shoe manufacturer, but really they're also a media company. They know how to make shoes and make them a part of culture. And we've been buying Nike shoes since what, the 70s? They're still relevant today because they know how to continue and follow the trend. And they just hire in or contract in the tech that elevates them to the next level. Clearly with their new Nike swoosh marketplace, they're not building that themselves unless they brought in their team, which that's why they acquired Artifact and why they buy and hire the best engineers. So I think for us, like we're at the intersection of gaming is really culture. It's digital culture. That's why Nike does stuff with Roblox and all these other things. And then I think of luxury because Web3 is very hard to get into and you have to have either a very high skill cap or skill knowledge base, or you have a lot of money or you have a lot of you have something else. Everyone has a higher value skill when they enter this space because it's so early. And while everyone else wants to chase like this mass market Disneyfication, and I think that will happen, my priority right now is how do I delight customers in the high luxury area using our media, what we do, our club, things like that. So high luxury, because that's the most attainable right now. And then when it opens up, we'll want to go further retail and then media over technology, because I can't keep up with the pace of technology. And most people won't be able to with AI. But I can keep up with culture because as long as you're selling product to humans, to people, and not to AI or other bots, culture is always going to be relevant. Culture, taste, a lot of these things start to have an effect. One of the things you talked about with media, I actually I resonate with this deeply because I read this book called The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. And if you haven't had a chance to check it out, I've talked about it on this show all the time. One of the things that he mentions is the three ways to... I guess you could say build financial freedom. And historically, the two most popular ways were to have labor, to have capital. And then the third one, the one that's more important, what he calls permissionless leverage. 
And that largely comes, by the way, you might see my dog. Yeah, yeah. So we're a pet friendly podcast. Don't hell worry about yeah. It. Hell yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You I have a cra- you, you heard my dog in like multiple spaces. It's just a loud corgi. Yeah. Here and it there. It's crazy. Yeah, She's yeah. A, uh, I'll see if I could give you a quick little glance here. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's a good and then chilling. That's Zeus. Yeah, yeah, they're chilling. Yeah, yeah they're happy. Vibing. I had cool. the door closed and they said, hey. <laughs> that's fine. As long as they're chilling on the bed, no problem. Yeah, just don't be giving me don't be giving me a headache, please. But one of the things that Naval Ravikant talks about is permissionless leverage. And it's this idea that if I build it one time, I can have it reach as many people as possible to work for me. Now, I think with media, that might be a bit different, but he talks about building the thing. He uses Joe Rogan as an example. We talked about Mr. Rogan earlier with his podcast, right? He's reaching, even for me, when he first released his podcast, I was not necessarily, I wasn't pursuing, or I shouldn't say pursuing, I wasn't invested in that show. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. until he started getting some more interesting guests or particular guests that spoke to me a little bit more. And it became easy to then transmute his creativity, his ideas, his philosophy, the philosophy of others, things that they can learn from one another and put that out on mass scale. And now, or maybe what was it, like two or three years ago when Spotify bought him out, like he's good. My man is set. That's generational wealth on the real. We talk, shit talk time. He made at least a hundred million on just the rights deal. That doesn't include ads or product promotion, physical, doesn't include his UFC stuff. He's, Probably close to a billionaire at this point, I would say. Quietly, I would say he's quietly close to that. Quietly. I like your word choice there. It's more very fond of people who are very rich, but not necessarily famous. I think Joe Rogan's maybe not the best example given like his earlier But there's different types of fame, though. There's different types of fame. There's like burnout very quickly TikTok fame and you have to capitalize quickly because you're part of a trend and then the algorithm in the month is going to phase you out. And those are people who are like, have influence or no, that's different. I would say they are viral, but being viral is not the same as having influence. You're like, you could be viral, like the Island boys, they're viral, but what is their influence on culture? None. Very little. We forgot about them after three weeks. People made fun of them largely on Twitter for a couple of days and, or whatever. And that was it. I made a couple of YouTube videos, but they were viral. The influence is when you can move markets. When you can be last for more than a few years, you're around, maybe you build a company and you're like a founder slash someone of public or like what you're doing. Maybe you run a podcast and it goes beyond viral. And then that leads into you being an influencer in a certain category. I find that virality on TikTok has destroyed a lot of people's brains in terms of what it means to have influence because you can have, there is more than one kind of way to have influence, having a show or having a couple of numbers on a YouTube video is not necessarily influence. Sometimes influence never reaches video. It's something private, like being an executive at Nike or being the head of Best Buy, right? Imagine the influence someone at Best Buy has. They literally have to buy orders of PlayStation 5s and their influence decides whether your kid gets a PlayStation 5 for Christmas or not. That's some pretty serious influence. That's a lot more influence than someone on TikTok has doing one Fortnite dance video. So I think the difference between viral and fame or our viral influence and fame, Joe Rogan sits between fame and influence, but the three are different. It's largely thanks to brand, right? There's a, yeah. there's an association that ah, Joe Rogan speaks on nootropics. Chances are it's probably a decent product, given that fact that I know that he's 
explored a lot of that. He has, it, it's, it was more than one thing, which is to your point, what I think virality poisons the mind with is I just need to get viral once and the rest of my life is good. Like I, I made it. I become a micro celebrity in a sense. And a segue to a random question I just thought of. So I know you've reflected heavily on this, on coming into the space and not necessarily having any intentions to be an influencer, but you've certainly amassed a bit of a following. You show up all the time. You're not afraid to speak your mind. Like, what are some of the reflections you've had to deal with when it came to, holy shit, I actually have an audience? You tell me, maybe you feel like you have some influence already. I would say at least from my view, from the gaming side, a lot of people really value you or at least are looking towards your interactions, looking towards learning from you, your thoughts. How are you dealing with the battle between influence versus brand building? Because I think that's the real goal there. I think it's an interesting question because I do think about this often and I sometimes even get lost in it. And I'm not like viral famous by any measure, right? Like I'm, but I'm known in like the specific sector that we both share. You have to remember that I'm 27, even though I feel like 87. You just turned 27 then. No, I'll be 28 this year. I've been 27 for a minute. Okay. But uh, when you're our age, I don't know your age. I assume you're I'm also 27. Age. Okay. Or so you're I will be I, in literally in 20, less than 20 days, I'll be 27. All right. Yeah. 27 doesn't feel that much different from 26. I agree. Uh, I, yeah. So you'll be fine. But what I've figured out is to get to the next step of running a company, you either have exceptional engineering skill in the field that we're currently in, which I'm not an engineer, or you have exceptional conversation skills. And each one has a plus and a minus. So the plus of being a prolific engineer, a very good engineer is that it's very hard to replace you and you could have influence on the technological level. The, the negative is the time to become one is very difficult. And generally speaking, because you're such a good engineer, you're probably not a great speaker. Very few engineers are actually fantastic speakers or conversationalists. And it's not to say that they don't have a social life. That's not what I'm saying. I mean that they think so logically because they're math-based, engineering-based, that thinking too logically actually goes against the grain of being a great conversationalist because you're creative in one way. You're creative on the logic side, mathematical side. You sit in the reality of what exists. Conversationalists try and sit in what doesn't exist yet. And the two kind of clash frequently, the engineer and the conversationalist, and I'm more of the conversationalist. I say, I want this done. Engineer tells me it's impossible. We usually find a common ground and it's, yeah, that guy's ridiculous, but we didn't, we did figure out we could do this thing. I've already accepted at this point that I will never be a good engineer, although I've wanted to be one. And when you're young, the best thing you can do if you're not an engineer is learn how to be very good, either speaking on camera or expressing your ideas through a creative form. Because in the corporate world, whether that be gaming or any other product that's consumer-based, not tech or science-based or legal-based, you need to convince people to believe in the thing that you also believe in. You need to know how to be a persuasive individual. That doesn't mean lie. It means state your case and explain why your case is valid. And so I'm not a very good public speaker, at least in person, but I've learned how to be a very good public speaker online, which 
in some cases, maybe a more valuable trait than learning how to be a good in-person speaker. Because in person, I have to schedule an event and maybe 500 people listen to me. When I'm online and I speak, maybe 50,000 to 5 million listen to me, depending on what it is I'm trying to convince people of or persuade them to believe my case. The short answer is, while I do not want to be a personal influencer, I know the only way to build a brand at the current skill set I have is through first having my own brand that I can then transfer authenticity into the larger entity. I do not want to be a major celebrity of any kind, nor do I think I will be. I would like to be a very good founder in the gaming and the brand space. And for now, I have to speak on that. At some point, I'd like the brand to speak for itself. I respect that. I, I have a very, very similar goal myself of people know me as the guy who built up this brand, but the brand stands on its own. It doesn't need me to be there talking it up, so to speak. I also want to challenge one of the things that you said about maybe you'd never be an engineer. Don't say that. You could be. You absolutely could be. Being an engineer is nothing more than... My math scores say otherwise, but yeah, sure. <laughs> but you'd be surprised. Like it does not, It's not all... Depending on what discipline of engineering you pursue, then perhaps it might be uh, some more necessary than others. But it's all about systems. It's all about recognizing what pieces work together. And to your point about how some engineers are not the best conversationalists, I think many people, many folks that have been in that study box themselves into this is true this like th that thing that you're imagining can't be done because this is a system that we have and we cannot go outside of this box and it's really nice to find come across people that are very creative like we could call them conversationalists I, i'd like to think that pretty much any person is creative even the engineer but the conversation oh, engineers are actually extremely creative i just mean in creative to meet what goal right they're inventors so they create things that the whole world uses. They are creators, but there are not that many. And that's not to say there couldn't be more. It's just a lot choose not to be. We find that you work 80 hour weeks coding on the computer. You don't feel like making a YouTube video sometimes. <laughs> it's just a matter of the time you have on earth. Very few do. And I don't think I'd be an engineer to anything like, for example, Anna's stature, but I think I could be a game designer. I think I'd be a good one. There um, you go. That yeah. that was what I was going to say that you could you could start with. Start with the things that make more sense to you. If if you're interested in being an engineer, figure out how to build a game. Understand what the tech stack. I'm sure you already have a decent understanding of what all this looks like, but it's one thing to to see it from a piece of paper on the screen. It's another thing to have your fingers on the keyboard building the things itself. In my experience as an engineer, I felt most people are just most engineers don't they will build whatever, but they mm -hmm. don't have like that vision the vision of what is it that you want me to build? So yeah, they'll be spending the 80 hours a week building stuff that everybody uses, but it wouldn't have, again, this isn't always true, but more often than not, it doesn't come from them. They need some leader, somebody to your point, like that founder, the CEO that has the vision that knows what we want to do, knows what we want to put in the hands of the people. And I need you to figure out how to build it. I know what I want. I know what the end looks like, but I need you to figure out how to get us there. And the best engineers are the ones that say, okay, no idea how we're going to do that, but I'll figure it out. So if you find people like that, definitely keep them close. Oh, yeah. I think for our mint, for our first mint, which was literally last week, it feels like it was a month ago, but it was literally a week ago. We were very lucky. It went very smooth. Someone did try and throw a phishing attack on us, like just to try and throw people off, get people scared to mint, but uh, actually very creative, whoever did it. They must not like me to a very serious amount. Anna, obviously the one who wrote our contract told me like, quite frankly, it was so impressive. If they figured out who it was, they would consider giving them a job.
<laughs> Damn. Yeah, it was very impressive. I'd be curious to hear, was it an exploit or you say phishing, meaning that they were trying to... Me, no, so basically you? they basically they flagged our site as a phishing scam and went through like this intermediary group called Fishforge. But it's very hard to do. And the reason why they thought it was inten intentional, not a mistake, is because almost every other... And again, I'm not a tech-oriented, but... Every any other way they could have flagged us for phishing would have been immediately automatically removed. But they knew the one place where like they they just banned before they even ask. So someone knew what they were doing. Someone was upset they either didn't get a mint or they don't like what I'm doing. It was removed within an hour. Nice. Not a big deal. I tend to believe that all that you put into the world will come back to you at some point. So that individual did something that maybe isn't the best objectively as engineers were impressed and as engineers said if we could figure out who it was we might offer them a job they thought that's how people at anna and their level think that's that how white hat hackers come around they are usually folks that know how to exploit something and then they say and then the individuals that have that service product website whatever say oh shit can you help us find more of that <laughs> no and uh, bring them on over yes yeah, cybersecurity is so serious i'm sure you saw what happened with with kevin rose recently losing all his even funds. right now while we're on this podcast recording azuki twitter has been hacked has also been hacked so, yeah it, there is no there is no shortage of redundancies that can be had for your cybersecurity. oh i'm sure we're gonna get hacked at some point it's not a matter of if for it's just all projects they like all companies end up it's a matter of when and then it's more about how we handle that response than trying to prevent it because it's almost impossible to prevent. It just is. An attack. I mean, we, just don't, yeah. we, we just don't know what's possible. We don't know what right. all of the parameters are, of, or not parameters, the vectors of attack that people could have. When we got hacked, maybe, I should say hacked, but one of, one of the founders got their account compromised. And this was maybe like a year and some change ago. From front to back, because of all the redundancies we had, from front to back, we m mitigated the attack to less than seven minutes from the moment we were notified to when it all ended and when we got back. We never technically lost control, but the guy was close. The guy was really close. I messaged him and I told him, like, you're sharp. You're really smart. It just sucks that you're doing it for shitty means. Yeah. But, I'm sure he doesn't care. Yeah, he probably didn't. He probably no. didn't, but I try not to meet it fire with fire. I'm not a... Not looking to stir up the pot. You're I a peacemaker. Yeah. Yeah. A, how do you say it? I'm sort of a little bit. That's my <laughs> what you got, motherfucker? What you got for yeah. me? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's okay, man. Only on Twitter, though. I'm a keyboard warrior. I don't throw hands in real life. It's not you my got, style. You got the Twitter fingers. Oh, yeah. At this point, yeah. Love it. I want to ask about some of the things that you may have learned over the course of the last year. And it doesn't have to be specifically to mm -hmm. things with nfts or gaming or whatever but i'm curious about big lessons that you learned about yourself maybe about your family how you interact with people whatever you'd like what are some of the biggest lessons you learned from 2022 heading into 2023 it's a very good question the f you said from 2021 or are you talking about 2022 like yeah just last oh, year 2022 yeah life lessons life is short coming out of because really not that COVID's never going to be over <laughs> that's right. the only thing we talk about but the worst of it or at least i shouldn't even say that what we understand of it, we're, I guess the term is not over, but we're now cognizant of what our future is going to be as a civilization. But I think for me, it's like how futile some things you do are. Like a lot of my life has been about wanting to have control 
over something. It's actually why the project is called Real Agency. It's actually a sort of, I think the term's double entendre. Real, because who's real, who's not, obviously. It's a fun part about that. But agency can mean more than one thing. <clears throat> In the community sense, it can mean a group of people who have a certain objective, helping other people, an agency, a group. But agency also has another meaning, a double meaning, which is control over your destiny, control over who you are and what that means. And the story I wrote is based on that. Like, what does it mean to have control and make decisions? And uh, it's quite interesting because on one end, you are in control of your life. In terms of that's something I've also had to think deeper about as I get older. There is no one to stop you from making a bad decision. And if you make it, there are no second chances. Or if there are second chances, you're going to start from a place that no one can pick you up out of. You got to pick yourself up. So there's that side of control, but then there's the other side of lack of control. And that is that I can't control what viruses enter the world. I can't control wars that go on in the world. There's a lot of things I don't have control over yet. As a society, we watch the news every day. And you know why we get angry? It's like we get angry one, because it's like in our human nature to get angry or upset. But I think we get angry because we sit there and we think that there's something we can necessarily do about it. And sometimes there is, but it's not like on an individual level, usually a collective level. And I think if people, and I sometimes grapple with this, actually every day I grapple with this, if I and others can accept that there's a lot of things you can't control in the universe and the world, because we're very insignificant in terms of the grander scheme of whatever this is, they might be a little happier or they maybe not happier, but they might be at peace, whatever peace means, right? Peace is perception. My version of peace is different than your version of peace. For some people, war is peace. And that's something that people don't talk about. It's just what their nature is. Nature is different than peace. But that was the first, what it means to have control. And that's what a lot of, that's why it's called real agency. It's what things I've thought about. In terms of business, I've learned, and this is something that could get me in trouble in terms of a thought process, but it's, in my opinion, I hold it to be true in my own mind at this point, which is that venture capital is not so different than retail in terms of trend setting, verification and trust and product market fit <clears throat> or venture market fit. And I do have a fund on the side separate from real agency. And I, now that I know the fund business pretty well, there's still stuff I'm always learning, but I've realized that there are a lot of VCs that know a lot of great things. There are brilliant VCs, but in general, the investing market when it comes to validation is largely built on the equivalent of Yelp reviews. You really think about it. This is word. Somebody else's recommendation. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Not everyone is doing the exact research or they do and you can only know so many things, right? You, you can have a due diligence for a thousand years, but there are certain things you just might not know or the future, you can't predict the future. So that's another thing is that VCs, some of them, there's some that are just brilliant that I would work with any day of the week, but there are, there's a market just like consumers. All right, I'll give you an example, Elden Ring, okay? So Elden Ring is the first to come out with this totally different type of game that is a more in innovative version of their Dark Souls series. It's from software, the, That's right. the studio. You can bet that after looking at the success of this game, that there's going to be dozens of studios that are going to copy it because they know that VCs saw the growth of Elden Ring and are going to be seeking that as a potential investment vehicle. And so who actually started the due diligence? Was it the VC? 
was it the the studio or was it the retailer? Actually, it was the retailer because the retailer told the market that's what it wants to buy. The retailer then told the studios that it wants it to make that product. And then studios were like, VCs are looking at what retail is buying. So really, the retail is at the fundamental level of all of this. And that's how this all works. So I'm rambling on, but I've learned about how the VC market ebbs and flows. And the other thing that people can learn if they're looking to raise money is that you can't raise in a bull in the same way you do in a bear. There are two completely different strategies. Most people think they have a great company, they can go out to market. But having a great company is actually one of the only parts that's not the most important for a VC. Not only do they have a great company, but do you fit their return profile? Are there expectations in a bear market? Are they getting enough LP capital in the bear market? If not, then you may have to lower your, the amount you want to raise. Are your valuations, we call them bull or bear market valuations. In a bull market, you could charge raising, I don't know, $5 million for a game at a 30 to $50 million valuation, which is insane, largely insane, depending on history. But in a bear market, you got to tone that way down. We're talking like 15 Much million, more modest. 12 million. So I think, Pete, I think that's something that I'm on both. It's funny. I'm sitting on both sides. I'm on the founder side with Real Agency as a founder of this new company. But I also have worked in VC and I have an understanding of how that space works. And often the two don't have this, not often, sometimes the two don't have aligned incentives. And that's something interesting. That's not a negative or a positive thing. It's just an observation. There's a bunch of other stuff I've learned, but those are the two I've thought about a lot generally. I want to tap back into the uh, the first point that you made specifically around wanting to have control. Do you feel like you're in control of your destiny or are you currently surrendering to what the universe will bring to then say, okay, I can't control and all of that shit, the wars, the madness, the pandemonium, how people, whether or not people like my haircut, whatever, <laughs> I cannot control those things. I can control myself. Is this a battle you still fight with every day? Absolutely. I think I'll fight with it until the day I die. I think everyone does. I think it's like a natural human thing. I, I don't know who to, it's actually a very Buddhist mentality. I'm not religious personally. To, like, I don't have a, I mean, I was raised half Jewish, half Christian and grew up more on the Jewish side. I do have some faith there, but it's actually funny. It's actually a known thing that a lot of Jewish people who are Jewish youth tend to actually adopt some Buddhist thing because it's, I don't know why that is, because there's a lot of Jewish tradition that's around accepting and embracing suffering in order to become better. That's right. Buddhism is actually not that different. So it's actually, no, it's a little different. Buddhism says suffering doesn't exist as long as you don't want things, essentially. But our desires, it's like yeah. having a desire is literally us saying, I'm going to suffer until I have this thing. So right. if my desire is to have a Ferrari, I am unhappy until I have the Ferrari, when realistically, as you said earlier, which I really resonate with, we're the ones that are at the liberty of choosing our peace, choosing our happiness. I actually believe that all of that is a choice and it's it starts with appreciating the smaller moments, but that's a, a But it's something that I've had to, I wish I figured it out in like college. I figured this out a little later in life, not that I'm still young, but in the grand scheme of my current timeline, it's in the short time span last few years. I think as I get older, I will actually giving up control, knowing where I'd like to go, but accepting the consequences of whatever happens is more like it. Because giving up complete control means, oh, you just sit on the couch and you eat Cheetos all day. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> right. Like people, like what happens is people who are suffering will adopt this and they go, oh, that means I don't have to do anything. And then they can think they feel good about doing nothing. That's not what I'm saying. That's actually 
against what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you do the best you can do every day. You know that the best outcome is the one that you dream of, but accept that there's probably 30 different other outcomes that range from good to bad. And the only thing you can control is that you accept that you did the best you could when you put it out into the universe. So that's what I grapple with because I'm someone who does want control, someone who's working on what that means. That's again, why I did this story. But in general, I think I'll always have control over my initial, I pushed the ball, right? And if we were in a vacuum of space, I pushed the ball, but I don't know where that ball leads. Does it hit a planet? Does it like stay in the vacuum of space for all eternity? Does it hit a rock? Does it hit going to a black hole? I don't know. I don't know Maybe where it bounces goes. off a wall and comes right back to you. And you get all I know, again. all I know is that I pushed it out into the universe. I was hoping that it would reach, I don't know, Earth two, but the odds of that are unlikely. I just have to accept wherever it goes. That's amazing. Yeah, man. It's one of the things we. Uh, my bad. I'm gonna close the door real quick. No, you're good. It's one of the things that we talk very heavily on this show is the the notion of taking accountability over the things that we can control. It's a, more of a stoic approach to life. And saying like, all right, pandemonium will ensue. There will be madness. There will be things that bring you suffering, that bring you sadness. But it's a matter of saying, in this moment, I am alive. And in this moment, I do have a choice of how I want to react to these things. And a quality life, in my personal opinion, a quality life is, okay, things happened to me, but it didn't change me. It didn't, maybe not change me, but it didn't. Everything changes you. It just, right. so it's funny. So like the keys, and again, the story is much more fictional. It's not totally tied to my life, but there are influences to take from it. Like the keys have a soul, but the keys can take on many different forms. Now they may have a form that they choose, that they appreciate, that they like, but the outside forces definitely change your physical and even changes some of your internal, but there's always going to be a part of you that is you, that if you choose it, cannot be changed. That is your resolve. That is like your fundamental being. So yeah, I think that things can change you, but there's always a piece of you that's like that childhood person. I think I think your soul, not literally like religiously, I'm talking about like our story and just consciousness. That's the beautiful part, man. Yeah. yeah you're- I think everyone has a ch- inner child in them. That inner child is their soul, whatever that is, in, in like the most peaceful way, the most interesting way. And then all these other layers get stacked on top. Right. And those stacks are interchangeable, but the base is that childhood person you were because everyone has the childhood wonderment, right? The first time you had ice cream, the first time you went to Disney world, the first time you played a video game, the first time, first time you kissed a girl, things like that. There are these childhood things, right? Or guy, whatever your, your preference, right? For me, I don't care. There's, there are things that you cannot take away from your first experience on planet earth that cannot be interchanged. But there are repeated experiences that can be interchanged that can change like the way things. Do you want your soul to be boundless? Do you believe in feeling weightless? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. I'll figure it out maybe when I'm older and I'm like contemplating my the end of my life a little bit more. <laughs> I ask because I really resonate with what you're saying about the inner child. And I think a lot of people ignore their inner child and a lot of people get stuck into this flow of I have to deal with this. I oh what was me? Everything sucks. I can't be happy. And our inner child, the things that it loves that he or she loves that they grew up on, the things that are fundamentally them. This is what I was trying to say earlier about the changes, right? It's just because someone was mean to me does not mm-hmm. mean even if there were if I was ten different people on ten separate days all in a row, 
were all mean to me, it should not change who I am fundamentally. It shouldn't stop me from being kind, being patient, wanting to listen, wanting to learn from somebody. Those things are fundamentally who I am. And to be changed by an external thing, I think that's actually a lack of control because you don't have your you don't have yourself on lock in that sense because you're letting whatever ha- whatever outside of you change your mood change bro like even i wake up in the morning sometimes right and my dogs will be barking and that's what i wake up to and man i'm not a morning person i know Me that either. about myself no. <laughs> but the hardest work i do every day is waking up and saying even to the tone of my dogs barking their ass off is wow what another day even though i should even though it's fucking agitating right but i'm alive it's beautiful i get to see another day and this is what let I me mean. ask you a question it's like by nature as someone who does spaces do you feel like when you go on discord or, or twitter that you're putting on a different you or do you feel like it's the same you that you experience here now in our conversation i talk to myself that's all my twitter is that's all my twitter will ever be is a mirror that just i uh Again, like I, I'm so you think you're talking to yourself in the mirror and people are observing you talking to yourself and they may resonate with your mirror. Or do you feel like you're talking directly to an audience? We're about all your mirrors. Mirror? We're all mirrors. Everybody is you talking to me right now is showing me sides of you that that only you know about yourself. And it's on me to deter to pick up on those things or pay attention to some of the nuances about what you say, why you said specific words instead of others. I believe that's true for anybody in the world. Some guy who's going, who goes into your Twitter space and says, hey, you're a fucking impersonator, hacker, lying mm-hmm. piece of shit, scam artist. He's presented a mirror to you. It's not to say that is a reflection of who you, Mr. Jonah Blake, are. It's, man, I wonder what he's going through. I wonder why he feels that way, mm-hmm. right? Like that, there's, there's a difference. So to answer your question, when I go online... Discord, I think, is a little different because it's more of a chat platform. I'm yeah, yeah more personal. Talk yeah. to people. But on Twitter or, hell, even my Instagram or pretty much any social account, I'm putting stuff out there that if I were to pick up my phone and see, I would want it to resonate with me. Or That's my goal. Let me tell you how. So I agree. I do feel like I'm talking to myself in the mirror and then people resonate or they don't. But I also see another point. So this is an interesting thought. And I do feel like I do this. Sometimes I don't think I should, but I feel like they're my thoughts, but they're redressed. So for example, the thoughts I share with you here, maybe a little more, it's the same, it's the same thing I say, but it's a different tonality. So when I talk to you, I'm saying it and I'm talking to you like a normally talk right. normal day. When I'm on discord, I talk more descriptive because I know that while it is our community, Really, they want to know what it is I'm doing. And when I'm not descriptive, I'm intentionally non-descriptive because it's it, one, I find it really funny. And I think it's cryptic. Fun. Right. It's fun. I think it's fun. And then Twitter, Twitter is different. I'm more passionate and that passion can get me in trouble. It can also get me a lot of value. In each of those different outfits, the same message is being said. But I've found as a, again, I consider myself a conversationalist. I'm not an influencer yet. And if I am, I don't even know what that means yet. As a conversationalist, you can say the same thing, have it received differently because the tonality changes how people view that mirror of you. And so I'm not an engineer by practice, but I think being a professional conversationalist is the engineering of people's perception. Do you know why? I don't know why. 
because the conversationalist cares about the most important thing that humans should care about, which is clarity. It's the reason, or at least my view of why you might feel that way on Twitter specifically is because Twitter is challenging you to put all of your thoughts into this one concise, consumable saying, phrase, tweet, whatever, 280 characters. It's a challenge for real to express yourself in a way that, again, where your passion maybe isn't getting you in trouble or maybe you're trying to be sarcastic and make it a joke and then now you're hurting someone's feelings, whatever. There's a million different nuances there, but it's challenging you to be clear. That's why the I love the comparison you make here about the the conversationalist being an engineer of the self, of what we say, of how we communicate. I believe it's it's the hardest job. It's the hardest thing to master. Well, it's a science if you, and I don't think I'm a genius in any regard to this because there's a lot of people smarter than me who've done this. It's not like I'm the first to think about this. But I think that people who are conversationalists, and sometimes I don't think I have this empathy, but I think you have to have, there's different types of intelligence. I think that my logic is lower, but my EQ is higher. And I'm less interested with the process of developing the product and more about what the product makes you feel. I'm just someone who personally believes that the way you feel is what defines anything we like, unless it's an, all right. So like in society, there's needs and wants, right? Nothing we're doing here in entertainment is by definition a need or in social is not a need. Food is a need. Water is a need. Housing is a need. Clothing is a need. Things of that nature. Travel, need. So we're not needs. We're, de- we're desires. And when you're working in the world of desires, you have to be able to have an understanding of what it is people desire. For example, I find that a lot of Web3 games have a lower floor price. We're going to talk about economics because they don't actually understand what it is they're trying to get people to desire. They think that people natively in Web3, there's, there's the problem with most of these games. It's actually why Gabriel Layden, as much as people love or hate him, does this. He knows what people desire. It's what he's very good at. He knows what people desire. Has nothing to, he's not a brilliant game designer. He's a brilliant reader of empathy. He's a great designer of desire. He understands um, people's why. Like, why right. do they want this? And... I think that was what I wanted to comment on just very quickly. Sorry to interrupt you, but it's about understanding the why very clearly. And I think Gabriel was very good at that. Right. Because a lot of Web3 games, and that's not to say there's bad ones. There's very good ones I play that have this problem. It's a marketing problem. It's also a, a community problem. It's that they feel that the more they explain, the more they're gaining trust. But that assumes that players cared about trust in the first place. They never did. They care about experience. They care about desire. And only when you honor their experience and their desire do they care about brand trust. It's like putting the cart before the horse. You're asking players to... You're, by you just putting out white papers all day and saying how you're transparent and all that, you've already cut, skipped a beat. And you're saying, all of my players who don't exist yet already love our brand and love what we do. Now we just need to maintain their trust. If you look at every Mario game was built on desire. It wasn't built on trust. Every time you play a Mario game, you're playing because you remember the value of Mario brought to your childhood. You don't think, oh, I wonder if Nintendo paid their devs. There are some who do. And I'm one of those people who definitely care about that. But the average consumer when they go to market does not care about that. They care about, is the game fun? Does it make me feel happy? 
And are the graphics or at least the art style, is it like interesting on my new Nintendo device? And once you've done those things and you've built that desire, then your hardcore player goes, do I trust them? Are they like, do they have the same dev team? That's when they start exploring the deeper shit. But I think that's what a lot of Web3 games have gotten wrong. And I think Gabe has figured that out. I think a few others have figured that out as well. It's something that I'm always working on. We don't have a white paper. How is it that we don't have a white paper on our project, but we're doing just fine? It's because no one ever wanted that. No one ever wanted a roadmap. No one ever wanted a white paper. That was all stuff investors made up because they knew they had to do that for due diligence. Truth be told, that like the 2021, 2020 into 2021 era of NFT pandemonium, there, there was just no rules. No. So like people were very quick to just look left and right and say, oh, okay, well, they're doing it. Maybe we should too. So I, I think that's more of what happened and I it started bleeding over into Yeah, gaming. no, I think that's true. Yeah. But it was just so much so fast. But to your point about the average consumer not caring about the game dev, for example, I highly resonate with this. I read Pixels Blood or what is it? Blood Sweat, Blood, Sweat and Pixels. Blood Sweat and Pixels, yeah. Jason Schreier. Well, yes, yeah. great read. Even though it was like a few years old, still felt very real. A lot of people don't understand the deaths, nor will they care. People care more about the experience. If when I load that game in, is it going to be without any crashes? Am I going to have fun? Do I want to show it to my friends? If so, then maybe I'll start thinking about developing a relationship with... Literally Dookie Dash. People are wondering why Dookie Dash worked. It wasn't trying to be a big mass market game. It has no intent to do that. It had current users that have desires and they know their desires, which are to be a D-Gen and show off. That's their desire. And they said, let's make a game that is expensive to buy in because that's what our that's what our people want. That's what they desire. They desire the wealthy experience. And they figured that out. They And it was a simple game. And we put together, designed, polished, but they knew exactly what they were doing. They touched on desire. It's a great gameplay loop. They wanted people to show their value to the other people in the community. And they wanted to engage. They didn't like a lot of game devs in Web2 think this place is a scam because they're doing this. No, it's nothing to do with that. It's that they figured out who their customers were. They're exciting those customers. They're delighting them. And when the time is right to branch out to the type of users that you think design desire to be the only people who should have these games, they're going to do that. But they know, I don't know, like I'd rather have 10,000 at max customers and make good revenue every quarter than have a million customers who barely want to play or pay for the game. But say I have big numbers. It's just, I don't know. It's just like different. So let's, uh, let's take a step back. We, we were able to observe why Dookie Dash did well, because we understand the why we understand the desires of their group. I'm curious if you feel like you understand the desires of your group and maybe even more, if I could be more specific, I'd actually am more curious on your why. What is your why? Why do you give a shit? Like, what, why go through all of this headache? Because it's not easy. There's mm-hmm. seemingly no reason to suffer, <clears throat> and yet you're putting yourself through it. So why? I think we're just... The internet's not going away, as far as I'm aware. I think that we've hit an evolutionary point. I'll tell you why I initially did it. It starts with Mr. Beast. So Mr. Beast gave me this idea. So I look at Mr. Beast. Let me ask you, how do you think he makes money? I just watched his Lex Friedman interview and I learned a ton about just his game, so to speak, the way he does things. But I couldn't tell you. 
If, so if, it's not it's not from programmatic ads on YouTube. Yes, that do make him money. Like he makes millions a month, but that's not where a lot of his money comes from. It comes from product, which CPG product, chocolate bars, like McDonald's style drive-through, things like that. See, but um, those things weren't present initially, and he talks about that. So he, no, money so came didn't. from somewhere else, probably like no, the money came originally from sponsors and programmatic ads. Okay, yeah. But, and I think our monetization path is different than his, but the philosophy still rings true. And I'll get to the philosophy of it. He realized that having influence was actually the best possible path you could have to becoming a large founder of whatever company you wanted to do. And one of the ways he actually spends his money is actually through investment. So his manager has a fund called Knight Ventures, which is a part of Knight Media, because his manager is Reed Weisher, I think his last name, from Knight Media. That's his manager. That's his agency. Knight Media built a fund on the side that built an LP out of its content creators. So they manage the content creators. They take a split of the money. The content creators then go make money on their content. Little bits of their money are funneled into this LP. I don't know how they structure it. Probably it's like a one-time thing. I don't think it's every quarter. Maybe it is. And then Knight Media found VCs that can manage the fund, run it, and go invest in products. And think about the flywheel of the value here. The primary driver of Mr. Beast's growth is his engagement numbers. They're off the charts. He can take that engagement and build products, but not only does he have to, can he just build his own products, he can build other people's products. And so now you go from a content creator to a prolific investor of some of the best possible companies in CPG on the planet. Why? Because his audience is so significant and they are great converters that every deal wants to have Mr. Beast in it. And so he's got this unprecedented deal flow, unprecedented access to capital, and he's got audience numbers that are through the roof. And so what I saw on our fund side was that the future of funding gaming and CPG is not the institutional level. It is at the content creator level. And I've always thought that if I, were, I wasn't be a content creator, and now I am, that I would be a content creator slash fund manager. That was my last year thought. And then I had an epiphany near the end of last year as we were planning this. And I said, the fund is completely separate entity, completely separate from the real agency business. But if you build content, why couldn't you do it through a community manner? And why couldn't community build their own products? Or why couldn't you create this new model of like brand awareness that hasn't currently existed. When people want to be affiliated with Mr. Beast, they have to join his team, right? Isn't it really easy to access when you don't have to necessarily join my team, you're just purchasing in as a membership holder and you're getting access to things what we're doing or not doing, or you are getting access to a network of other people who have a similar goal. And I think NFTs are a great incubator for other content creators or other people who have their own aspirations. So I could have done everything without an NFT, but doing it alone is really boring. And I think that people who want to be a part of, I call them like digital country clubs. So we already saw that Proof has an art country club. Board of Yacht Club is a DGen country club. I think that there aren't many gaming country clubs. And... I don't know. I don't think we're for everyone. I don't think I'm going to onboard people from Web 2 to Web 3. I actually don't think most Web 3 games will onboard people from Web 2 to Web 3. My belief has been, or at least my thesis has been that Web 2 will still be Web 2 and we're all going to play those games and have a fun time even as a community. I'm going to play Harry Potter. I'm buying that game day Fuck one. Yeah. 
Like you, I just saw the 10 minute gameplay today. It looked insane. I'm of course I'm playing that game. I don't care if it doesn't have Web3. You, you're yeah. fucking mind that I'm not going to play that game. But the most high value players that do spend money, that do like these experiences, that do want to have more connection, they will come to Web3. And I think Web2 games will have Web3, but only at the high asset value level where the Web2 game is whatever it is, but only people at the high levels who are spending real money are very committed to a game like an esports athlete. They're going to start using NFTs because they have a lot more invested into the culture of the project. And so that's like where I see myself. I think that's a long ramble. Did you get any like reduced answers in that? I, I think I did. I, I, if, I, if you could simplify this one okay. point, yeah. which is the philosophy. There was one clear overarching philosophy that you wanted to encapsulate that, that I think answers the why, the why of real agency. I think that media has changed. Media does not look like IGN or Kotaku. That is not the future of media in gaming and entertainment or the metaverse, whatever you want to call it. It's all the same interchangeable word. The future of media is a shared experience. It is not just a video, but it is conversations. I call them campfire companies, and Discord is the first example of that. And I think if you're going to build a gaming and country club experience, you have to. You're going to have to have NFTs. I think it'll be required. It's not a matter of like legally required, but if you're like being taken seriously in the world of networking and being a group that does great IP together, you need an NFT. Fundamentally. Access to and helping game devs, rethinking about what it means to make content and having a network around content, and what does it mean to build products together that a mass market might be able to use outside of just our small 1,000 plus group. That's basically, and how is that related to gaming? Because it doesn't have to be totally gaming, but it has to have a gaming thematic to it. Right. At least the feel to it. That's what most people are there to come. 100 with. Thieves. I, in fact, I actually look at 100 Thieves as an interesting model. We're not going to buy rosters. We're not, it's too expensive. But 100 Thieves figured out the community content making model. They also figured out the branding model. And there's parts of 100 Thieves that I like. I also look at, what's the name of the company? Devolver Digital, yep. where they're a publisher. We're not a publisher yet, but we certainly could help in the growth of games going to market. And I think that's a really amazing angle that we can tackle as well. There's a limitless set of possibilities that are open to real agency. And I think as you spend more time and as you learn more, because every day you're learning more, you might say, ah, actually, this might be the more ideal approach. And yeah. seeing how you operated so far, I don't think you had any problem pivoting or making adjustments as necessary. I applaud you for your ability to roll with the punches, my good friend. It's very nice. So, Jonah, there is one last thing that I need mm -hmm. you to watch because I know you well enough, maybe not super, super well, but I know you well enough that I've sent you this video and you've never watched okay. it. So we're going to, I'm going to force you right now to okay, watch it that's with fine. me. And that's the best Sounds thing good. about this, this platform that we're on Werby where we can just watch it together. Are you, you sponsored by Werby? That was an interesting I am not, no, but it was smooth, right? That's that good. You, you should apply for it. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. So check this out. All right. Oh, you're sharing? All right. Yeah, I'm about to. Oh, is this the, you're so big on Jet Set Radio. Okay, so... 
For all you writers out there coming up, spread across the five boroughs, this one's for you. There's a new kid around, and he is in your business. This is the Word best. says he's lost his head. He might be coming for yours next. Heidi's going for the crown. The crown. All city king. The streets just got a whole lot more interesting. I might even go check him out myself. Now, I don't think he'll be alone for long. He'll gather up a bunch of like-minded fools in no time. That's if the military police don't take him out first. This is war in style. Let the record spin. Very I'm good music. You. I say, like, is that an original track? Or did they license that? That was really good. That's from uh, SoundCloud. Oh, is it? Wow, of... that's very impressive. So yes. it's literally Jet Set Radio because, like, it's a it's... spiritual successor to Jet Set Radio. Did you totally see? Different. So I assume you follow Dexerto or Deserto, however you want to say it, on Twitter. Ooh, if I see the name, I'll. I'm sure. Popular. It's a popular gaming like media company. If you see it on Twitter, they posted a clip of a guy who is making a game and it's literally crazy taxi, but futuristic, like flying taxi. It looks oh, really good. Yeah, to go look at it, it's really impressive. You you mentioned how one of the games that you're excited about was Harry Potter and it's does it has no Web3 elements to it, but you're still no. trying to get around and play heavily. For me, that's what this game is. I'm anticipating this game more heavily than anything. To your point, yes, because I've been a big Jet Set Radio fan for yeah, a yeah. long, long time. I actually still have, I don't know if you could see the green bottom, but I still have my Is original. Is that the original Xbox copy? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, mine from 2002. Yeah, yeah. I still have it. Just an undisputed classic. Jonah, again, I'm trying to be respectful of your time. This is the segment of the show where I put the mic in the hands of my guests and we have them plug talk, share something that they really want to share with folks, send a message of love, some advice. The floor is absolutely yours. Yeah, I would say don't take life too seriously or you're going to look stupid. <laughs> Making fun of life is a lot more realistic. But that's my piece of advice and advice I'll take for myself. Other than that, you can check us out at realagency.xyz. You can check out our collection on OpenSea and join the community even if you don't want to buy one. It's open for everyone. As someone who's been a part of the community for some time, I could tell you with a ton of confidence, it's a great place to be. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, I will be putting all of Jonah's socials down in the podcast notes or on YouTube. If you're watching this on YouTube, be sure to check out the video description, like subscriptions, everything that could possibly help the show get a little bit better would be wonderful. Of course, you may have seen our NFTs already. If you're looking to support the show and be a season one OG NFT supporter, all proceeds from there are towards helping this show be bigger and better. No promises as to what will come from it. But Where do I find that NFT? Because it's the first I'm hearing about it. So again, it's nothing like super, super crazy, but I will share it with you. Okay. Right here so you could check it out. But it's my approach to Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans article. And my thinking behind it is, if I can figure out who the thousand true fans of this show 
are. I can't promise them anything right now or I don't know if ever, right? Because one, I'm not trying to get into securities or none of that, but no, no, you don't. That if, yeah, that's the one thing about people don't real like they don't realize is that, yeah, it's a whole people try and promise the world when they just can't. It's just not right. how that works. And no reason to. And again, like I'm still learning a lot, I'm still trying to figure out what's going to be the, I guess, the magic way here. But that's the whole point of life is figuring out on the journey what makes the most sense you don't have to have all the answers you certainly don't have to take things too seriously because no and i just said myself i don't mint on this computer because well it's security and this is i have different pcs for that but i sent it to myself and i'm gonna mint one because it's pretty well cool. i appreciate it if you do that'd be awesome and i would highly appreciate it i will say i am actually making an sbt for all of the guests of the show i'm so buying one way, anyway let me buy one anyway jonah thank you for your support man it means a lot and yeah. again thank you for coming on the show this has been a really great episode ladies and gentlemen you've been listening to the steady compass if you see us on the socials shoot us a follow that's at quest xyz that's at q u e z t xyz be sure to give a follow there on twitter or on youtube any support helps all the time and as always be sure to keep it real be kind to one another don't be a dick like Jonah said, just don't take life too seriously. It's uh, it's worth living. So, Jonah, I appreciate you, my man. That's it. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, we are out.